Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Joe and I are thrilled to welcome our next guest. Anne Milgram began her career as an assistant district attorney in the legendary Manhattan District Attorney's Office. In 2001, she went to work in the criminal section of the United States Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division, where she rose to become the lead federal prosecutor in the nation for human trafficking crimes. During her time at DOJ, Anne was awarded the Department of Justice Special Commendation for Outstanding Service and the Director's Award. From 2007 to 2010, Anne served as the 57th Attorney General of New Jersey, and she currently serves as a law professor and distinguished scholar in residence at New York University School of Law and is the co-host of the Cafe Insider podcast with Pete Barrara. Anne Milgram, welcome to Words Matter. Thank you for having me. And thanks so much for joining us. I think I'll let the lawyers start, the two lawyers in the room start on this, and then I may have a political question or two to put to you. So we want to kick off talking about a couple of cases that have recently been decided in the Southern District of New York and in Washington, D.C. by district court judges responding to congressional subpoenas for bank information and accounting information on the president of the United States and some of his businesses. Both the Southern District, Judge Ramos, and in Washington, D.C., Judge Mehta said Congress is absolutely allowed to investigate this and request this information and knock down any of President Trump's lawyers' attempts to quash those subpoenas. But wanted to get your read on those opinions and what's next. I think you're completely right. Those two cases are unbelievably important for where we are today. It's almost worth taking one step back, though, which is to say that Congress should never have had to gotten this in front of federal judges in order to have the administration and the president come to Congress and give testimony and provide documents. This is constitutionally required. There are co-equal branches of government. And it's extraordinary to me what we're seeing, which is the president just basically saying, we are not giving you any information. We don't agree with what you're doing. We don't like the way you're doing it. And so you get nothing. That's not the way our system of government works. So these two cases, you said it perfectly. One judge in D.C., one judge in New York have both said Congress gets the information. And it's worth just stopping on. One of the things that Judge Mehta said, which I think is so important, is it's impossible that the United States Congress would have the power to impeach the president, but is not able to investigate him. And I think that sort of sums it up in my mind of where where the opinions are. Now, you know, the president has already decided to appeal the Washington, D.C. case. I think they'll appeal the Southern District case, Judge Ramos's opinion yesterday, I think will also be appealed. And that was the Deutsche Bank and Capital One decision saying they have to provide all these financial records. But to me, it is so incredibly important. We're talking about the financial records of the president. We're also talking about what was publicly reported recently, that the president has $300 million in debt. That's an extraordinary amount of debt. We don't know who it's to. We don't know if there are foreign governments involved. And to say that Congress and the American public doesn't deserve to know that, which is essentially the arguments that the administration has been making. It's just completely wrong in my view. Hey, Anne, let me ask you to hypothetically step into the role as chief counsel for the Speaker of the House. I like a hypothetical. It's yes, just, it's just like, like law school. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's hypothetical. Flashback. Usually I get to ask them, yeah. but yeah, for go a, for it. For a former press secretary, the first rule is you never answer a hypothetical, yes. <laughs> but now I'm asking, not answering. So give me a sense of, given all the issues involved, 
is there a way to stack these things up? The because there's there's six or seven cases now. Uh, there's been some movement, for instance, on DOJ and the House Intelligence Committee. There's the New York State Legislature passing a law. There are three other committees looking. Give me what you think is the strategy for stacking the sequencing so that it's the most advantageous for getting the information. Or is this just throwing things up against the wall and seeing what sticks? So that's a great question. It is, can I say both? Yeah. I know that's a bad way maybe to answer hypothetical, but the the first thing is that you know you want to get in front of the best judges who are going to be receptive to your arguments and that could be any judge the cases go on a wheel and so i don't mean to suggest you want a political judge when you say a wheel you mean it's random it's random and what what i mean to say is you want a judge who's going to you know take the facts and evidence and who's going to rule quickly and who's going to be receptive to hearing the arguments in my view on the law Congress wins on all of this. And so all you want is a judge who will call this, you know, you, you're looking for judges who will call it straight down, straight down the line in, in accordance with the law and the Constitution. It's a little tricky when you start thinking about what the administration is doing because they are blanket. People call it stonewalling. I think it's beyond stonewalling. I think it's, it is obstruction of some sort, which is they're just saying we're not giving you anything. I think Congress needs to move to put themselves in a position to litigate every single one of those. And which ones go first? It's always best to have your strongest cases go first. I've done a lot of test cases when I was prosecuting human trafficking, prosecuted the first case under a lot of the new statutes that were passed in 2000. And we would have loved to have had the best case. We did not have the best case, but we still went forward because we felt it was the right thing to do. So I think you want to pick the strongest case, but I wouldn't hold back in litigating at this point because it's not also clear which cases will move the quickest. One thing I'd say about the litigation piece and we shouldn't have to use the courts the way we're using them. But my view right now is it's clear we have to use them. And there's no other way. The president is a bully. And like all bullies, you know, if you give them half your sandwich and think they're not going to eat the other half, you're always wrong. They always take both halves. And so the only way and the only reason there's been any movement over the Mueller report is that they were willing, Congress was willing to hold bar in contempt. And so to me, I would litigate on all of this. I would pick the best cases. I think, though, that even picking the best cases doesn't guarantee that they'll be the first ones to come out. Is executive privilege demonstrably harder to fight than your basic constitutional oversight responsibilities yes. of the Congress, the things that the first two have looked at, I, th- I, I believe? Yes. The reason why the financial stuff should move quicker is there's no argument for executive privilege there. And so there's no basis to deny any of it. And that's why those should move quicker in the court. The executive privilege cases, I would also litigate on those because what's happened now is this sort of blanket almost preventative way that they're saying everything is privileged right now under the Mueller report. All of those documents are privileged. And they did that just so that they had the opportunity to come back and argue this is privileged on page 10 or on page 20, whatever that is. There's going to be litigation around executive privilege with this president because they're claiming it for everything, everything. And there's no possible way that's right. Not everything, first of all, is executive privilege. Second, you don't get to blanket walk in and say we're not giving you things. But here's the problem, and you guys know this. The problem with executive privilege is that the administration then comes into court and says, here's what we think is privileged. The Congress comes in and others and say, here's why we don't think it's privileged. And then the judge has to rule on all of it. And that's more cumbersome and takes, I think, there's a lot more time involved in that kind of litigation. So let me switch from hypothetical, your counsel for Nancy Pelosi, to your the legal handicapper. What would you guess is the first thing that will get to the highest court in the land, which, you know, which one of these cases, if you had to guess, 
and then predict what the dynamic within the court will be on that? Ooh, <laughs> tricky questions. So I think it's tough to know what the court takes first because I think the financial – one of these financial cases, whether it's Mazars or Deutsche Bank, Capital One. And, and how quickly could this move? As, as, I think it know, could move fast. So I wanted to ask about that because there have been these two kind of schools of thoughts among prosecutors and, and, and lawyers. One is that they're drawing this out. This is going to be a long slog through the courts. This is going to take forever. But the other side is saying, actually, there are ways to expedite this and cases of national import will move quickly. And even yesterday, Trump's lawyers filed to expedite the case in D.C. And I suspect that the D.C. Circuit will grant that. They've been granting a couple of expedited cases lately. So what do you think about the trajectory and how quickly it's all going to happen? One of the things that's really important about the D.C. Circuit, and and they haven't approved yet this expedited briefing schedule and hearing schedule on the Mazars case, but it looks like they will. And that would get that done in July. Right. Right. July 12th, I think, by the end of briefing and then an oral argument. It's really fast. Right after, right. It's really fast for a federal court. What What's important, though, is that I think they did it because the judge said, you have seven days. Yeah. Right? You have seven days to appeal this, and to we and this needs to be expedited because every day it's not is hurting Congress. And that's very similar to the opinion that came down from Judge Ramos. And so – and Judge Ramos did the same thing. You have seven days, and this has to be expedited because it's hurting Congress. Now, I think the Second Circuit in New York – the appellate court in New York will do the same thing and will expedite. So I do think that courts will make an effort to move these cases quickly. I personally think there's no reason for them not to go quickly. And the courts, for them to be effective as a co-equal branch that's sort of deciding between Congress and the president, if it takes them two years, it basically destroys everything. Like there's no possibility to have that to have that enforced, that that Congress is a co-equal branch. And it would be atypical for the D.C. Circuit because they traditionally actually pause oral arguments or conclude their oral arguments in May so that they can get a number of opinions out over June and July. So having oral argument on an expedited case for the D.C. Circuit in July would be extremely rare. Yeah, this is all rare. And and then remember that after those appeals go through the the D.C. Circuit or the Second Circuit, that's when, let's say that they, let's say they uphold the district courts, which my view is under the law, they should uphold the district court findings. Let's say they uphold it, then Trump can petition to the United States Supreme Court to take the case. The Supreme Court doesn't take every case. And so that's the first question is, do they even take it? Are there four votes to take it? Exactly. Do you think there are? So I, I think I think very likely. I mean, what what becomes interesting to me is you have a bunch of folks on the court who are You've got five conservatives, one of whom is Chief Justice Roberts, who I think is more of an institutionalist and sort of sees the Supreme Court as an important part of American government and life. And I think he will be my, you know, if Joe's going to make me bet on this. Well, um, I was coming back at you at this, so go ahead. I'm not dodging. I'm not dodging. You guys were getting into the legal weeds to avoid this, but I'm I'm still here. I'm not avoiding. I think if if the court takes it, and sometimes the court doesn't take things to dodge it, and so – it's very possible to me that the court dodges the financial one. So let's say they don't take it possible. If they did take it, this is such a fundamental question of does Congress have power to do this? The answer has to be yes. If the answer is no, then it means we have an imperial president. We don't have a president. We have a king. That, to me, is the bottom line. And the way that that the judges in both opinions have framed it, it's very clear that Congress has legitimate oversight authority. The president doesn't get to decide whether they're executing that in a fair non-political way. So why wouldn't the four liberal judges, we'll call them that for the sake of argument, why wouldn't they want to take this one, given the fact that if this, it feels like this case puts the most pressure on Roberts? 
But then they'd be rolling the dice on Roberts. Right. And there's always a risk. Always a risk. And and I think that's what Roberts would do, but I have no insight. But they're going to have to roll the dice at some point. And is it, you know, well, let me ask you this question. But if they don't take it, it, remember that the law is good then. So if they don't take it, then what happens is that the, the, and in our scenario, the federal judges, we, we already know this, have now ruled saying that Congress gets the information. Then you go to the appellate court. The appellate court, in our scenario, has affirmed that, meaning they agree with the So they would court. only take it if they wanted to, to be, take an extra step. We're, we've yes. now demonstrated to all of our listeners that I didn't go to law school. So thank you for- Amen. The, That's yeah, a good thing. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're keeping it real for us with our hypos. So, you know, for people who are following this who are non-lawyers, what steps have, do we have to go through- before we see Don McGahn testify, before we see Bob Mueller testify, before we see Hope Hicks, before we see Corey Lewandowski, if you understand uh, the speaker's strategy is she wants to animate the Mueller report. She wants, before she makes a decision on going forward with impeachment, she wants the story to be told in, in living color. What needs to happen for her strategy to work? For her strategy to work, what we're seeing with McGahn particularly is a good example where I personally think he would testify tomorrow if the president allowed him, but he's now been put in this position where they've said everything is privileged. It's very clear to me that they will not win on that argument that everything is privileged because, first of all, he sat for long conversations with Mueller. You could argue about you know, whether or not that counts as executive privilege. But then there's huge parts of his testimony publicly released in the Mueller report. And that's just like Fast and Furious, the Obama error, Eric Holder, ATF incident where DOJ under Holder tried to withhold certain documents and the court ultimately said, no, you've already made that information is already public. They get put out. And so I don't see a winning strategy for the president on this. What I do see is potential for delay, because, again, I think the executive privilege litigation is going to take longer. They're now going to have to give time for the parties to brief. What is executive privilege? Why is that privilege? The opposing side will say it's not privileged. It's and if there and if it was, by the way, it's been waived. And then the court hears the arguments. And so, I suspect that they'll do the same thing with Hope Hicks. Everybody close to the president, they're going to argue. I think executive privilege. And so, it's all litigation. And do you believe that Congress has no leverage beyond the courts? Any of the inherent abilities they have. Some of what I think is happening, and I don't know how far Congress wants to go on this, but the White House has articulated, okay, we think these things are executive privilege. But there's a lot that Don McGahn could testify to that would arguably not be privileged. And so the question is, does Congress want to pull him in and say, fine, we'll you know hold back on anything you say is executive privilege right now? It's tough to do, and I think the administration is going to oppose any conversation with people like McGahn. But here's one, here's one point. McGahn and Hicks, they they may they will listen, I think, to the Trump administration. But we just saw the former Secretary of State come in yesterday, and so I I think one of the plays for Congress is to get all the folks who are willing to come in outside of the people who are going to listen to the administration. So let me take this now to its fullest extreme. The Supreme Court decides not to take the case, and the Congress has granted the authority. The Supreme Court does take the case and sides with Congress on their oversight ability. Trump continues to refuse to turn over the documents. Right. Then, we, you know, we are truly in a constitutional crisis in all, in all ways. What happens then? Yeah, I agree with you. I think if Trump refuses to turn over the documents, which I would like to tell you I don't believe is possible, but unfortunately that's not true in today's world. I think none of us should be betting on the president to do the right thing in this instance. We are in a constitutional crisis. And then you get into questions of 
does the House start impeachment? Does Is there a move to have the congressional sergeant of arms go to get the documents? I mean, I think there are a lot of interesting scenarios. M- my view about the president refusing completely is that that's a really hard thing to do, even though in theory, I think it, even if that's his instinct and what he wants to do, but at some point the American public has to understand, and I don't, I don't think this is an easy thing to understand, but they have to understand that it doesn't matter what the president says about Congress requesting information or whether Congress should be requesting it. Congress gets to request it. And it's true of Democratic presidents and Republican presidents. You, you well know this is the way that our government works and it works to protect us. Yeah, I think that the American public is, you know, we always talk about the three branches of government, but the American public might be the linchpin in all of this. And right now, I think the strength of Speaker Pelosi's strategy here is to take it out of the politicians arguing with each other and take it to the courts. I think what worries me most is in the Fox News Infowars world, you have 35 to 40 percent of the country who will do whatever the president says. And you have a president who has a very expansive view of presidential power beyond even, you know, what we considered the normal you know, federalist society view. And um, I don't think it's beyond question that he wants to prompt something that allows him to, you know, unilaterally change the rules and suspend parts of the Constitution. And I think there are Democrats who share that. And it's, you know, it's one of the reasons why, you know, the Sergeant Arms has not gone to the Justice Department and tried to enforce, you know, the, any of these contempt citations. Joe, do you do you worry at all about the military? I mean, if you and I were talking about another country and we weren't sitting here in the United States, I think we would be concerned about the, you know, if we got to a constitutional crisis, we would be concerned about a leader's attempt to co-op military power. I, I think that's exactly the right question. And I think it would have been unthinkable before Donald Trump and unthinkable when Jim Mattis was the defense secretary. It's no longer unthinkable when you have a defense industry executive who hasn't been confirmed sitting at the top. I don't believe that somehow the tanks will roll down Pennsylvania Avenue, but I think it could lead to chaos. And then chaos becomes the pretext for suspending basic American rights. You know, and you have the president, you have this president who jokingly talks about serving three, four, and five terms. And it's always been my theory that every joke has about 30% of truth in it. So I think we should be worried and I think that is that's why the ultimate question will be what does Trump do when the you know the highest court in the land that accepts this case tells him he's got to do something because you know even Nixon turned over the tapes and his taxes yeah and his taxes and you know I, I just don't know that either the president has the commitment to the Constitution in order to do that or the people around him who have the country's interest at heart. And not to be scary, but it's scary. It is scary. I want to ask about your... Wait a second. Did that improve your mood? No. No, I brought us us down. (laughs) I want to to touch on your experiences as attorney general and talk about, you know, you mentioned the taxes and we talk about and everyone is talking about right now this constitutional crisis and this clash of three co-equal branches of government. But there is another way that the founders 
fractured power. And that's federalism, that's states' rights, that's giving the states their own power and ability to enforce laws. And just recently, the New York state legislature passed verbatim the New York, the federal statute on the 1924 tax law that would require the president to turn over his state tax filings. And I want to talk about the role that states can play in this clash of power and what they can do to move the ball and what's happening right now and what you think, from your experience as as Attorney General of New Jersey, what role they can play and, and what they're doing now. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and the New York law is a great example of what is possible, I think, in states. That law, if the president has to turn over his state tax returns, then we'll see his assets, his liabilities. We'll get, we would get to see pretty much the president's income and his and the loans that he has. And so that's a really powerful way to think about this that that New York State is 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 doing. I think this is it AGs can play an incredibly important role. We've seen them now on climate change being very active against the federal government as the federal government is rolling back regulations that um, were put in place by Obama and other presidents to to help the environment and and stop climate change. As we see the Trump administration rolling them back, you see AG after AG suing. That's one That's one example. I will tell you also that it's not new. When Remember when Greg Abbott was the Texas attorney general? He once famously said, Barack Obama was president. I get up. I go to work. I sue the federal government. I go home. And I think that depending on the, the time we are in our country, that's what attorneys generals do in order to vindicate the interests of the people of their state. So I think the AGs are doing a good job. I personally would like to see them do even more because I think states are really critically important in this conversation about what's happening in our country. And particularly as we see the president obstructing Congress and and refusing to, to turn over information and cooperate with investigations, it becomes even more important for, for states to try to play a role. What would be at the top of your wish list of what more they could do? Yeah, I think, I think that the tax bill is one great example of what they could do. Remember also, though, that related to a lot of the investigative pieces are in New York, or there could be jurisdiction in New York. So New York in particular has the Trump businesses are here, the foundation is here. And already the AG has been very active on the, the Trump foundation. And there are maybe other states where the there are questions about the finances or the loans that are held and whether or not there's an involvement by Russia or other foreign governments. So that's the kind of way I think AGs are probably now thinking about it. And I think New York was the first one to sort of say, wait a minute, all this relates to our state. Why are we not asking that question? Do you have a sense, of, you know, what what's going on at the SDNY has gone a little bit on the back burner since since Mueller came out. Do you have a sense what their game plan is? Because it feels in some ways like they have the richest vein of yes. corruption and fraud. If you listen to what Michael Cohen has said publicly and then what we've read about what some of the immunized players have said, you know, reading in the newspaper. If I were sitting there, I would be working very much on the inauguration, the inaugural committee, which it's clear they're on. Um, Part of why they're quiet is they're probably gathering evidence, interviewing witnesses, putting people in the grand jury, trying to figure out if crimes were committed. But you have over $100 million spent, a lot more than President Obama's inauguration. Twice as much. Twice as much with with a lot fewer events and, and sort of things produced. And so I think there are real questions around that, where the money came from, what was done with it. There's also something that's interesting that's been talked about a little bit recently, which is that the investigation into Michael Cohen closed, but that there's still in parts of the investigation potentially going into the National Enquirer and hush payments. It's not clear to me whether that's accurate, but 
if it were true, that's something else the Southern District could be looking at. And I also would say the Trump Foundation, remember the New York State Attorney General's action was a civil action. There is potential questions there I think that the federal prosecutors could look at. Doesn't mean doesn't mean in any of these things that they get charged. And I think it's important to remind people that prosecutors look at things every day and they gather evidence without bringing charges. But I certainly think that there's probably plenty of things that the Southern District is working on. And if, as you read the Michael Cohen indictment on the illegal campaign payments surrounding Stormy Daniels, is the door still open for them to indict and prosecute the president after he leaves office? I think yes. I mean, I, there's no question in my mind that he's, you know, he's an unindicted co-conspirator. And what that means is that, you know, there are times where you make a decision not to ever indict someone and they just become an unindicted co-conspirator. And there are times like this one where the Justice Department is not allowing a case to be brought against the president because of the Office of Legal Counsel opinion. And in that case, in 2020, I think that that is viable. The question is, will it happen? We don't, we don't know. And I think there are a lot of I don't think anyone will know until until that time. As someone who had a leadership position at the Department of Justice, can you calculate the damage the president and Bill Barr has done to the institution? Yeah, it upsets me greatly. I mean, I, I love the department. I think it's a great institution. I've also worked closely with the FBI and many of the law enforcement agencies that the president's been attacking. And look, no, nothing's perfect. The Department of Justice isn't perfect. There's no law enforcement agency that's perfect. But there are extraordinary men and women there who wake up, go to work every day to do justice and to, you know, try to do what's right. And the president has attacked and vilified these organizations repeatedly in ways that are, in my view, deeply unfair. And I think that's, I think there's something else which is really important, which is Bill Barr recently not being truthful with the American public. And I just think about it. You're a line prosecutor. You're sitting in one of the local U.S. attorney's offices. You're sitting at Maine Justice. And everything we tell you about being a prosecutor, how important it is to do justice, to be fair, to always be honest and transparent, is the exact opposite of what you've just seen your boss do. And that, to me, is a really chilling thing for the Department of Justice. And it's politicizing the department, bringing the FBI into politics in a way that, you know, I'm not going to say we've never seen anything political happen, because we have, but on this scale and with this sort of relentless media campaign against these sort of government officials, it's, it's really disturbing to me. I want to flip that a little bit, talking about politicizing things. You know, my experience when we went through impeachment with with President Clinton was, first off, there were only white male legal commentators. That's changed, changed, thank God. But there generally was a difference of opinion among legal scholars. You know, for every Michael Zeldin, there was a Jonathan Turley. And there was a balanced debate that went on, you know, every day. If you watch cable news now, you have a lot of really smart prosecutors and former prosecutors like yourself arguing almost unanimously that the president is wrong. Is there a risk that, at least among the Trump voters, they start looking at you know prosecutors and legal experts as partisans? Of course. I mean, I think, look, I worry about this all the time. I think that the media and the news has become so tribal. Echo chamber. Yeah, an echo chamber. And we got a question last week on Cafe Insider, and it was a great question. We didn't get time to answer it. But it was a woman saying, my husband and I can't even talk to each other anymore because I'm a Democrat. He's a Republican. I watch MSNBC and CNN. He watches Fox News. We can't watch the the same shows. And I I hearken back to the time where everybody watched the same programs at the 7 o'clock news, where everybody was sort of getting at least a good bunch of their news from one source that was more fact-based and felt less less partisan. What I would say on the question of our prosecutors being partisan, though, 
In my view, the answer is no. What is extraordinary is this president. And what prosecutors do, and I, I do, and I think most of the folks we see is they look at the facts and the evidence and they apply them. And here, repeatedly, the president has taken actions or done things that I think lead prosecutors to say, hey, that's not right. The same is true of Bill Barr. And it, it's a pretty extraordinary thing, I, I think, to have so many prosecutors saying the attorney general did something wrong, the president did something wrong, the attacks are unfair. And so I hear you and I think the base, the president's base is the president's base, and I will not likely convince them that Congress has the right to get information. But the one thing I'd say to you is that, remember, under Obama and under Clinton, just think about Secretary Clinton and the emails and Benghazi and how many congressional hearings were held on that. This is a part of the process. And whether you're a Democratic or Republican president, it it has to be part of the process. Otherwise, we lose lose our government. Everyone is always looking to history and comparing things to the last impeachment. I I think we really have to go back to Nixon to to understand. And that, that is an apples to apples. But there's one fundamental change in our country since 1973, 1974. Back then, when the television networks decided to televise for an entire summer the Watergate hearings, you had no other choice. There were no other channels yeah, to turn to. you had to watch it. It yeah. gripped the country. We may have impeachment hearings here that get covered wall to wall, but you have 600 other choices if you're not interested, and you have Fox News that will that will tell you that black is white and up is down. So the idea that somehow these hearings will grip the country the way Watergate did I think is unrealistic, and I don't know that we'll ever get to the point where – there's a consensus with the public, a strong consensus on what to do. I'm not sure there's a question in that, so now I'm, I'm playing senator, which is, what do you think of how smart my question was, Anne? <laughs> and if you're playing senator, that means you won't ask me a follow-up question, so I can uh, answer and, however and, I want. In fact, I reclaim my time. <laughs> there you go. So I actually think that it's a great idea to have Anne just give us the leftover questions from Cafe Insider that they don't answer every week. So oh, we if you get just great want to questions. send them our yeah, way, we'll, we'll, we, we will we'll take your scraps. We'll, we'll, take we'll, the scraps. We'll, we'll take your scraps. But thank you for being here. This was, thank this you was guys. great. We enjoyed Thanks. it. It's great to be with you. All right, Joe. So for the What's on Your Mind segment for this week, I want to talk about your shadow White House briefing that you've been doing on weekdays. And it was especially fun last week. You had to postpone the start time of one of your shadow briefings for an impromptu presidential press conference. And it was complete with pre-made signs. And it seems like there was a little confusion in the press shop at the time. And I did a little research. And usually when the White House has a presidential press conference, then all other press conferences kind of get moved to the end of the day or, or not at all. So you can focus on the president's message. But maybe you held your briefing last week because you wanted to step on the president's message? Well, as, you know, as, as things take on a life of their own, you are right historically. Uh, any day the president holds a press conference, the press secretary does not hold a briefing. It doesn't hold in the current situation because Sarah Sanders doesn't do briefings. But because Sarah Sanders doesn't do briefings, I'm now doing them because I think there's a void to fill. And because it's fun and fun for me. And the important part of it is surfacing the questions that aren't getting asked. My answers are mostly either tongue-in-cheek or direct attacks on the the president. I think I suggested in one briefing last week that after his temper tantrum, the White House staff took him to the art room at the White House and he did some finger painting and he calmed down. And the White House did an official release of his finger painting. 
that gives you some flavor of these. To our listeners, I hope you can check it out on Twitter most afternoons. It's a way to every day remind people that this White House is not accountable to the American people. They are not doing what every other White House has done in my lifetime, which is send somebody out there, even on the toughest of days, to tell the people what the president's doing, what the president's thinking, what he's feeling, and then answer the questions that the press think are important. And one of the things that we do in this shadow briefing, and I like saying we because it's an enormous staff of me and well, me, (laughs) is try to at least put the big questions out there every day because they do need to be asked. And the fact, and even if they're not answered, highlighting what they are has value. And, you know, in my secret fantasy world, someday, whether it's Sarah Sanders or some new press secretary, they're going to storm into the briefing room and say, I've had it. I've had enough with this shadow guy. I'm going to do a briefing. And then you'll be done? And then I'll be retired and the happiest man in America. (laughs) Yesterday, there was a little bit of art imitating life because I had tweeted that I'm going to do it at 1.30. And when I got home at 1 o'clock and turned the news on, I was like, oh, my God, what happened at the White House this morning? And I so I, I did what I would have done at the White House. I pushed the briefing back, you know, a half an hour while I figured out, you know, what the hell had just happened. And it didn't take long to figure out that the president had just sort of lost his mind and boxed himself in just like he did at the government shutdown because he was angry and has no impulse control. But I needed the half hour to actually get caught up. So it was like a a kind of weird reminder of my old life 20 years ago. I did find a way to explain it. In the initial tweet, I said that the White House doctor had to put me through the White House concussion protocol because I had banged my head against the wall so many times watching the president's <laughs> press conference. It really was an insane day. And and we it's become normalized to have bizarre behavior at the White House with Donald Trump. But to uh, so openly set up a meeting where you, you know you're going to walk out and to go out and start screaming and then deliver when Donald Trump has left us and he's off in presidential heaven, Richard Nixon is going to come up to him and said, You know, when I said I am not a crook, I really regretted that for the rest of my life. And the I don't do cover-ups, you finally let me off the hook as the dumbest political statement in the history of the world. That's what people are going to remember from that day because it's so demonstrably false. I mean, we have a check that he wrote from the White House and put in the mail to cover up the Stormy Daniels. It's got his name on it. So he does have cover-ups, and as people quickly pointed out on Twitter – He just forgot one word, which is, well, I don't do cover-ups well. All right. So I want to talk about political strategy for a moment and and check in on how you think it's going on the Hill. Speaker Pelosi, despite Republican Congressman Amash's call for impeachment, seems to be towing the Democratic Party line, which is not yet. What do you think about her strategy? Is it working? We've talked in the past about the op-ed I did in the New York Times that argued against impeachment now and argued that there is a a political dividend for the Democrats because the Republicans are increasingly in an untenable position. And this could foreshadow a real shift in American politics going forward. When you're in the bubble of the, you know, being a Twitter Democrat or a cable news Democrat of watching this all day long, like I do and a lot of my colleagues do, your theory gets tested a little bit. A good number of people in the party who are arguing How can we let this pass? We've got to hold him accountable. We've got to punish him for what he's doing wrong. 
And I think Pelosi has been very smart from the beginning in structuring it the way she has. And her basic theory is impeachment is a risky political move, primarily because Americans focus on results, not process. And the result, almost inevitably, of an impeachment is that the president would be vindicated in the Senate. Definitely. And she's very worried about that. Her view was, let's use the hearing process to animate, bring to life the Mueller report, because most people haven't read it. And I think that was a very sound theory. I think what she didn't anticipate, I don't think what anyone anticipated, was the full illegal stonewalling from the White House, that basically a a legal position that the president can't be investigated. And I think she, last week, was beginning to face serious opposition within her own caucus. Politics sometimes is unpredictable. And, you know, that day last week, um, we'll look at it as a very significant day for this reason. She faced a tough caucus meeting. More Democrats in the House don't want to move forward with impeachment than do, but the ones who do get on TV more and light up the Internet more. But, you know, most of the moderate Democrats or people who, who are not in safe seats want to go slow. But, you know, she had to acknowledge in this meeting that this, the, the flaw in the strategy was they were having a very difficult time putting on these hearings to animate the, the, the Mueller report. There have been some good moves in the direction. The Intelligence Committee now has, is getting information on the counterintelligence investigation from the Justice Department, which they had been denied. We have the two court cases that we've we talked about at length with Ann earlier. But the caucus needed something. And what they got was her going out and using the word cover-up. What drove her comments after the meeting was to escalate the rhetoric and say the president is obstructing justice, which she has said before, but he's engaging in a cover-up. That was new. And I think that was designed to try to keep the pro-impeachment forces in check and give that give her more time to execute her strategy. I think she was helped by the court cases as far as we will eventually get these documents. And this is, again, you know, you can't, you can never predict what's going to happen in, in politics. But I do think it was the cover-up line that got under Donald Trump's skin. Now, I don't know that she did it to get under his skin, but Donald Trump gave Nancy Pelosi a huge gift by getting under his skin and having him do that press conference because he now basically has reversed the pressure. He has gone on the record as saying, America, your priorities I don't care about. I'm not doing anything for you. We're not passing any legislation. We're not doing your business. We're not going to fix your bridges and fix your roads until they stop being mean to me. And that's about the most untenable position you could be in. It is the exact opposite of the formula that Bill Clinton used during impeachment, where Bill Clinton said, it's not about me. It's not about partisan politics. It's about the people. I'm going to go to work every day, and I'm going to do the best I can. We're going to pass as much legislation as we can. And in in one fit of anger and childishness, Trump took all the pressure off Pelosi for now and put it back at the White House. If you had said to me last week on Tuesday evening, who's under the most pressure in Washington right now? What is it? Speaker Pelosi. This is real. I mean, the, the pressure building within our caucus. And through one childish outburst from the president, he totally reversed that formula. 
Now it's on the president. Now it's on the president to answer, well, why won't you do the people's business? Why won't you? And the, the, the story is no longer the supposed rebellion in the Democratic caucus. The story is right back on Donald Trump and his behavior and his temperament. And for people who say, does Nancy Pelosi have the right plan? I've said from the beginning she does. To people who are asking now, is it working? It sure as hell is working. I mean, it, it, right now, we, she, is, she, I think through the courts, is going to be able to animate this report, even if it doesn't happen right away. And, you know, Trump will have to explain over the next six months the gridlock and how he owns it. It's very much akin to the government shutdown, where he let his anger get the better of him. He shut down the government to, because he could, because he was going to show them. And then it took him 38 days to come to his senses, to reopen it, to raise the white flag. Maybe he'll raise it quicker this time, but the pressure has you know, moved, part by Pelosi's political skill, part by the president being a child. Well, just like the Tuesday-Wednesday shift, we never know what will happen next week. But we'll be right back here to ask you what you think about it. And thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.